I've got a couple more minutes with Kurt Kirsteiner, and I'm going to steal two or three minutes of that, Kurt. I want to talk about Fred Carter, because the first thing I noticed was the comparison. You know, Jack Chick and Fred Carter are really very similar to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby of Marvel fame. You know, they famously created all of the popular Marvel characters that you see on, on, on well, on movies now, but in definitely comic books when they did it. Uh, is that kind of how they were? Uh, and, and how did Fred Carter get into the mixture? Because like Jack, there's very little about him. Yeah, and it's also interesting in that most people don't even know, you know, about uh, uh, Kirby. I mean, the mainstream people don't know about Kirby. They all know about Stan Lee. He's right. the, the, the big persona. The right. same thing yeah, with yeah. Jack Chick. They don't yeah. know about, about who Fred Carter is. They don't know that he's black. And when he when he was brought on board, this is during the 1970s when there were still arguments over segregation. Right. And for Jack Chick to not only bring him on board but start a Crusaders comic book series where you have a white and black protagonist, right. that was very controversial at that time. But he just jumps into it with uh, both feet. Yeah. So, you know, again, he was a, a trailblazer, a pioneer in that regard. But uh, Fred Carter was a phenomenal artist. He had dropped out of art school, apparently because he wasn't learning very much in art school. Uh, mm. He just seemed to have a natural talent for these things. And he can copy a variety of different uh, styles. And uh, I just think his art's just phenomenal. If he had done commercial artwork uh, and gotten into comic book, the comic book business proper, he'd be a multimillionaire. There's right. no doubt. And people yeah. would have loved it because, I mean, how many great comic book artists are black, especially at right. that point? Right. So uh, it's really uh, – and he, and he always deliberately kind of stayed in the background. In fact, it was very hard to get him in that documentary. He said no. He wasn't interested. And Jack Chase said, oh, why, why don't you go ahead and throw the dog a bone? You know, it's not – he's going to treat you okay. And uh, that's the only reason that uh, Fred Carter did it. So uh, a great artist, very soft-spoken. Jack, Ch Jack Chick's very soft-spoken too. But Fred Carter – was very, very mild-mannered, and uh, uh, supposedly he was also a minister hmm. at his own little church, which is hard to imagine this guy standing up in front of a crowd. Right. But, you know, maybe it was a very small, intimate crowd. I don't know. But uh, I liked <laughs> yeah. him. Uh, he's my favorite artist between the two. I mean, I like Chick as the personality and the things mm. that he accomplished, yeah. but certainly the art, uh, it, Fred Carter just wins hands down. Yeah, I mean, and even Jack had, you know, these paintings commissioned, which you which you saw, you know, I, we're going to talk about your journey uh, in your visit with Jack Chick at Chick Publications in Rancho Cucamonga. But, you know, he commissioned oil paintings from him that he used in the uh, Light uh, Light of the World movie. And yeah, he even rejected some of them. So he was churning all this stuff out while making Chick tracks. He was very busy. And as you mentioned, extraordinarily talented. Some of these paintings are just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. 360 paintings to make that film. Wow. And all of them were pretty, you know, full-size paintings. These weren't little yeah. tracks and anything like that. Where so, are those uh, paintings now? Well, Chick, a lot of them are still in Chick Publications. No I, I wanted one of them, but I was just too uh, shy to ask for one. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think he would have given me one of the ones from the actual movie. Right. But one of the ones that he rejected, I thought, like, gosh, well, don't, you know, don't throw it away. I'll buy that from you. Right. But, I was just too mild-mannered to ask for it, you know. <laughs> and, and he since had given it away to someone else. So it's sort of like, drat, spoiled yeah. again. But Squeaky wheel, baby. Picture. Yeah, it was a beautiful picture of a demon sitting next to a little old lady on a park bench. 
and I thought, you know, Chick thought the demon was too scary. And of course, I thought, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. Awesome. I'd love to right. have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to go to Chick Publications. And this is kind of a cool meeting because in the book, you it's kind of brokered by this person we mentioned earlier, Reverend Rich Lee, which I thought that was a very interesting relationship that you'd kind of developed. I don't know, don't know much about you, but I felt like it was wasn't exactly something that you would put together. It wasn't quite Nick Nolte uh, and and um, Eddie Murphy from 48 Hours. It wasn't that much of a diametrically opposed group, but I wouldn't have thought you guys rolled in the same circles, but it seems you had a great friendship, so much so that he got you in to meet the elusive, the mysterious, the hermit known as Jack Chick. So how did that deal come about? And tell me about this, this you know, this pilgrimage, if I could say that. Well, Rich Lee is pretty interesting because he may have been raised as an assembly of God, you know, fundamentalist, but he was actually a very uh, man of the world. I mean, like I said, he had a, a law degree. He was also a big collector of Star Wars figurines. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really? his cousin, his uncle was a, a famous cinematographer in Los Angeles. And a lot of these people in the showbiz uh, industry knew of this cinematographer. There weren't too many Asian uh, quality cinematographers back in the 1960s. So when uh, he would appear, he he would uh, strike up uh, conversations with, uh, 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 what was the name of uh, the famous Ray Bradbury, Mm -hmm. the famous author, Mm -hmm. and uh, people in the show business uh, business would say, oh yeah, I was on one of his film shoots and stuff like that. He got to know the people who did the Shazam ISIS hour. In fact, I heard a podcast. I once listened to a podcast on Shazam. I thought, you know, I want to do a podcast, uh, but I want to learn from the like the really bad ones what I don't want to do. So I saw this title on ISIS Shazam, and I thought that's got to be a terrible uh, podcast. I got to listen, listen, listen to this and find out what not to do. And it's it sounded actually pretty funny, and the guy on it laughed just like Rich Lee. And I told Rich Lee, I said, you got to listen to Shazam, Isis. Yeah. I know you're a fan of uh, Shazam. And this yeah. guy laughs just like you. And he says, that was me. What? He did the podcast. How yeah. random is that? <laughs> That's so odds? weird. So he's very multi-talented. Wow. And uh, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, he, he has his fingers in so many different pies. Sure. And uh, we do have a lot in common in that regard. Interesting. And uh, okay. he's not afraid of watching these war films and things like that. Okay. So uh, he just knew that, you know, he he helped me early on get some of the tracks I was trying to find. And uh, was always very beneficial as far as finding out information about these uh, conspiracy gurus and things yeah. like that. He yeah, turned yeah. me on to all that. Yeah. So uh, he's a very fun fellow. And so he hooked it up. So you you went to Chick Publications and met the man himself. He brokered that deal. And when you walked in, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the bulletproof glass on the outside. I mean, you can't really do a Google like uh, we dropped the little guy street view. That's what it's called. I tried to see where it was. You can kind of do it, but there aren't really things that go in front of Chick Publications. So you can't see the glass and everything. But you mentioned this bulletproof glass. Someone's taking a shot. Um, I mean, what was it like going in there? You know, when you walk in, were you expecting there to be, you know, kind of like how you when you walk into a pawn shop there's like that little cage and you have to get buzzed in and you have to you know there's cameras everywhere was it like that or was it pretty easy to walk in it was kind of easy to walk in as far as security was concerned they didn't have any you know super uh, no guards or anything like that but you know going from that main lobby into the actual chick publications that's something that you know there is a door and it is locked and you have to be invited to do that but the amazing thing is when you talked about going to a pawn shop if it were a pawn shop, it would be that one on uh, MTV or the cable news network, the very <laughs> famous pawn shop, yeah. because the stuff that you see on the walls are these classic, iconic 
paintings by Fred Carter or maybe these super rare tracks, stuff that you didn't even know existed. And it's yeah. just right there on the wall. And people walk by it like they don't even like, oh, you know, that's just yeah. wallpaper to us. Right, it's right. Like, My God, I've never even seen that track before. <laughs> right. It's fully framed. It's right there on the, in front of their uh, Xerox machine. One of a kind track. I think you found five, didn't you? Didn't you find five unpublished tracks that they were kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, we didn't finish it. Or, I mean, that's, cr- you did that, you just walked in. You were there for what, a day, an afternoon? And who knows what you would have found. At one point, this place had been a jeweler's uh, store, or there was somebody who uh, made diamonds or something. And that's why they had actually had the bulletproof glass installed for that oh, reason. got it. And they also had, and so when Chick finds this place, like, oh, it's perfect. It's even got the bulletproof glass. Right. And they had a giant vault, a walk-in vault inside. That's and that's cool. where he kept all these super rare tracks. And they had a variety of these promo tracks which don't show up in the catalogs. And they had been stashed in there, just like one sample of these things. And Chick had even forgotten that they had done these. I go, well, what's this title? What's this doing? Oh, that must have been one of those old promos. Must have been... Don't you think people want to see this? You know, yeah. oh yeah, but that's from 1970. Who cares? You know, it's like, yeah, you know, maybe it has Fidel Castro and it's too old, it's too arcane. Well, that's what makes it interesting, right? Yeah. Well, because it's because he has a different mission, right? Like you as a collector are like, I want to see this thing that's rare and un. You know, it's been locked in a vault for 50 years. I want to see it, you know, see it published and see it in print. And he's like, well, it's not the right message. It's not what we're not yeah, here. No. To, we're not doing art. We're here tra- trying to change the world, man. That's old style. It's almost it's almost anti collector. You go into right. his office and he has the covers of his uh, tracks, including the super rare multi hundred dollar <laughs> tracks. He's cut the covers off and he just pastes them up at the top of the ceiling. You know, this is like, oh, my God, you destroyed a two hundred dollar track to do that. You know, you know, whatever. So what was it like to, to meet him? Like, what is I mean, tell me about your first interaction when you saw him. You know, what was he was he put off? Was he on edge? Was he hostile? Was he welcoming, warm? Like, what was the first interaction? Well, for starters, because uh, Rich Lee was there, you know, he was very, very warm and uh, he was trusting that uh, Lee, you know, would vouch for me. And he wasn't uh, uh, there was no force fields uh, in in existence. You know, it's just sort of like he took a genuine interest. In fact, he wasn't interested in talking about himself. He was interested in talking about you. He wanted to know about you. And me? he found out, well, I mean, he wanted to know about you. Me oh, got point. it. Okay. But it's just that it's, the guest is the main thing. Sure. And in my case, he's sort of like, you know, oh, so tell me about your wife. She's from, she's from Taiwan. Really? Well, my wife's from Indonesia. Interesting. You know, and uh, tell me where, you know, and so, I mean, he would tie these things to his life and you would think that we actually had a bunch of things in common when in That's reality, cool. it was just like one or two things. Right. But he also had a good <laughs> sense of humor yeah. because the one extravagance that he had in his life that I could tell was that he had a Cadillac. But even that he was embarrassed about. He says, well, I have it because it has this OnStar program and I'm diabetic. And if I slump over the steering wheel or something, it'll call the ambulance for me and everything. So, you know, he was kind of apologetic or whatever. And I made a joke. I said, well, Jack, you know that the Cadillac company is owned by the Vatican. They could be listening to our conversation right now. And he went, really? You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> And he laughed at that, you know. Well, so so in the book, I just want to add a level of hilarity to that story, because in the book, you make that joke and everybody laughs. And then he stops and says, wait a second. Are you serious? 
And then you say, yeah. then you yeah, you know, like, like in, like in uh, Christmas vacation, right? Are you serious about that, Clark? And you're like, no, I'm kidding. And then he laughs again. So there's like this whole weird, like this great scene in this car where he's for a second convinced that the Vatican is running his, you know, his audio program in his car, which is just wild. Well, man. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he completely believe it, but let's just sure, say that he enough. was receptive to it and suspicious right, right, right. of it. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I, I took it a little too far. Yeah. But. One part where, where I thought like, hey. Hey, you know what? You know he he is concerned for his safety, and he sure. is you know he still his antennas are up. And he told me of a story at one point. He says, "Now see those railroad tracks? That's the place where I was taking Alberto to lunch, and someone drove by and shot at Alberto." Wow! And 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 I thought, wow, you know, if that happened to me, I would tend to believe Alberto too. If someone tries to assassinate him in my pro in my that's in wild. my personal space but then of course then being the skeptic that i'm am i'm thinking that well did you see the bullet go past could it have been a backfire where they shooting at you or maybe someone else right. i didn't say any of these things sure, I'm thinking sure, in my sure. mind there are other explanations <laughs> but you can see yeah. how if you were you know uh you believe the guy to begin with and then someone tries to kill him in your presence you would think hey you know i'm all in yeah 100 percent. yeah so it, i mean i, I I would have made that joke too, but I am very impressed that you were able to pull it off. You you had the guts to make that joke, pull it off. Uh, it, it comes off really well in the story. And then you mentioned you got to see everything in this, you know, everything the production. You basically said that they have everything they need except a paper mill. They have the the artists, the writers, the the inking, the the production distribution. Yeah, that's pretty amazing in what is a pretty small complex. Well, uh, the front areas are pretty small, but when you get back in the back, it's like a giant uh, coliseum. It's wow. huge. Oh, really? And where they had the printing press, which is no small, like, two-color printing press. They had yeah. those also. But they have now they have the giant printing presses that run the giant mills of paper the same way that they do newspapers. Got it. And they can run off thousands of them an hour. It's just unbelievable the speed that it goes through. <laughs> yeah. And then you sit there and go, this is humongous. And he says – would you like to see our storage facility? And I'm thinking, Definitely. there's more? Yeah. <laughs> and you go back there, and there's even a bigger area, and it's got the forklifts, and they're lifting up all these cases and stashing them in there, and they're yeah. basically filling up container ships full of these tracks. Wow. Because, see, that's a common misconception we have. is like, hey, I've seen a few tracks here in the United States. The United States isn't even the number one target. Right. The number one target is South America and Africa. And right. those are two complete continents that are awash in chick tracks. And you talk to these people who have been uh, over in the Peace Corps and stuff like sure. that, and they laugh about it, and they say, gosh, you know, we had more chick tracks than we had toilet paper there. <laughs> you know, it was everywhere. Didn't you say, I think a plane, like, unloaded a bunch. I mean, wasn't that a way to get them either to Cuba or something like that? Like, they were just in yeah, a plane. Yeah, they fly over. Yeah, right? They would just throw them out the windows and let them fall down, and people pick them up. So it's just uh, they were copying the same sort of stunts that they did back in World War II when they were releasing propaganda to the Japanese and the Nazis and yeah. vice versa. Yeah, I remember one thing I totally forgot to mention in our main interview was that he built – he wrote these tracks. I think it was Why No Revival and adjusted the way – like how you get the, the chick track format is he copied – I believe it was communist propaganda as a way – the most effective way to get information – digestible information to uh, maybe an unwilling public. Yeah, originally they were like uh, eight by five inch uh, big little pit. In fact, the very first Wino Revival was the size of a Newsweek magazine. Do you have one? So, made, uh, No, I don't uh, have that one. All right, all right. I, I saw only one copy at Chick Publications. <laughs> but um, 
But I do have the mid-size one, which is uh, eight by five, yeah. and it has all different art, and uh, it's like uh, thirty-six pages instead of twenty-four. But you know, he basically thought, well, gosh, if I make it smaller, it's easy to stick inside yeah. your uh, shirt pocket, mm-hmm. and I can make four tracks using the same amount of paper right. that I was making the big. So it was all very – and you can also put in an envelope and mail it off for the cost of a stamp. Exactly. So if you send it in bulk, you can use it as media because it's technically a book. It's 24 sure. pages or more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, all these things just kind of you know dovetailed into this perfect combination for him. Yeah, it's amazing. So two more things. Uh, you guys went out to eat, and I love that um, you guys – I think Jack paid for it. He leaves a tip. And of course, he's going to leave a chick track with the tip. And I think you got to choose. So how w- did someone open up like a trench coat and they were like inside, like some kind of stolen watch merchant? Or was there a Halliburton that was opened up? Where did the selection come from? That I don't remember. But I do oh. remember had, see that fist full of tracks set out on the table and <laughs> says, now you get to pick the track. And I was reminded of the scene of Oliver Twist where you're pulling, you know, the, the pieces of a uh, Hey, out to see who's going to get the long straw and have to ask for more food. Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is the one. And sure enough, the uh, waitress, when she gets, and he, of course, he makes a big point of saying, you want to leave a big tip when you do this. Yes, because you don't want them to feel like you're being cheap on them and <laughs> making them pay for the track. Right. And so she gets this the money. And she says, oh, well, this is very interesting. He never mentions I drew that. He never yeah. mentions he knows anything about it, yeah. but, you know, that's just how he is. Well, I mean, a humble guy who ends up becoming kind of a celebrity. I mean, uh, everything he did is backwards. Uh, it blows my mind. I mean, you know, salvation, is that not worth a tip? What's five bucks if you're going to end up in heaven, right? I mean, you could also make that right. argument as well. Uh, last question. So you went there with the intention of figuring out, we didn't even cover this mystery at all. I'm going to leave most of it for your, for your book or your movie, but, uh, you know, the... Finding out who this elusive third artist was was the question you really wanted to ask Jack. Uh, this is great because there there was some kind, some other artist that was basically there for a three or four year period. You kind of had information. Some people confirmed it. That artist turns out to be a really famous artist, at least by by name recognition. That artist denies ever working for Jack Chick. So you're kind of want to confirm this with the man. Uh, so how did that go? Just tell me, like, how? what were the feelings going up to asking him this? Did you think he would be receptive? Did you think he would tell you? How did you pop the question? But it, must have been, it must have been more difficult than even proposing to your wife, I imagine. Well, uh, David Daniels was on, on the scene at that point. He had okay. just started. This would have been 2002 or so. Okay. And, uh, and he was uh, all about, like, he had been a big fan of Chick Tracks. He was a collector of Chick Tracks, and he was very curious to find out this answer as well. And we knew that this third, third artist was uh, a real person because he had a very distinct style, mm-hmm. and it kind of looked like the, the Hobbit character. You know, in the Hobbit uh, uh, movie posters and stuff like that. Well, it turns out that the person, the artist, was, in fact, the same artist who did the Hobbit posters, Greg Hildebrandt, wow. who also did the posters for Star Wars. Wild. And is a very, very famous artist. Now, of course, we immediately approached his agent and said, is this true? And his agent says, no, it's not. We don't even know what Chick Tracks are. Right, yeah. And it's like, okay, well, made a mistake there. But then I'm at Chick Publications, and I see, you know, the the invoice is going back and forth, and it's to Greg Hildebrand. Now, maybe there's another artist named Greg Hildebrand, and maybe, but maybe 
Greg Hildebrandt just didn't want to be associated with Chick Tracks because they had become radioactive at that point. Sure, right. He worked at him before he was famous. Yeah. Now he's famous, and you don't want to be associated with the gay blade and right. my yeah, name yeah, in yeah, the Vatican. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know? So it, it's pretty interesting, and we don't really know. Is it the same Greg Hildebrandt? But it's an unusual name, especially for an artist that's that good. And this guy was a good artist, but he just wasn't as good as Fred Carter. So... Uh, I just uh, I find that uh, that's one of those many mysteries about Jack Chick that can't really be answered. Right. But it's uh, it's so but enticing it to just kind of let them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so, I sometimes think it's the the unanswered questions that are more fun than the answered questions. Hundred percent. In, in his case, and there's so many of them. There, there are a million of them. But in one an- question, you did get the answer to as we close this bonus episode. You mentioned the Gay Blade, uh, and it has a famous cover uh, of uh, you know uh, of a, a man. I think he's a, a flamboyant man. In a, in a, in a, I don't know if it's some, some kind of ruffled shirt, you know, with the limp wrist. And you found out that it was Jack Chick himself who posed for that iconic cover. Uh, so you got the definitive answer to that. And to me, that was worth the entire trip, I imagine. I don't think yeah, you told anyone that. I can never that. look at that track. I cannot look at that track the same way again. It's like once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Yeah. But it makes sense because he wouldn't want anyone else to have to pose for that. You know, he's one of those military types that's sort of like, if you're going to send that group in there to take the fire, yeah. you need to lead the way. Yeah. And that's how he how he operates. That's how he was. Uh, I mean, what a great story. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, I enjoyed it very much.